Welcome to Oral Max Facts. We have a special guest today, Dr. Brandon Ramis. Hi there. Brandon did his oral pathology training at Mount Sinai, and now he's an attending there. And when we, when I was an intern, he had just started. That's true. <laughs> that was a long time ago, and I continue to go on. <laughs> the music continues for me. Okay, so the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about epithelial odontogenic tumors or amyloblastoma. When I think about amyloblastoma, I think about benign, aggressive, yet slow-growing neoplasm. That's right. And uh, probably the reason that you think of amyloblastoma first, even though it is the second most common odontogenic tumor, um, the first most common odontogenic tumor, of course, is the odontoma, um, but it's because the amyloblastoma is probably the most um, clinically relevant adonogenic tumor, and it occurs about as often as all the other adonogenic tumors, excluding odontomas, uh, combined. So um, it, it rises from uh, probably the dental lamina, um, which is the uh, like epithelial structure in the developing tooth bud. Um, and you can think of, you know, the most common histologic subtype of male blastoma, uh, which is the follicular pattern. You know, it has that so-called stellate reticulum like area, the cells on the periphery of the nests look a lot like ameloblasts, um, hence the name ameloblastoma. Mm -hmm. So the reason why we think that the ameloblastoma um, arises from the dental lamina is because certain labs did um, some protein expression studies, and they found that ameloblastomas have early dental development markers that are very similar to the dental lamina. Mm -hmm. um, now, there are some cases of ameloblastoma that occur peripherally, that is, they occur in the gingiva. Mm -hmm. And the origin there is probably the basal cells of the gingival mucosa. So dental lamina, or the dental students out there, is part of the tooth bud that eventually becomes the enamel. That's correct. And that's, uh, that's where the, all the story comes from. Yep. Okay, cool. So there are some new developments as far as understanding the genetic behind amenoblastoma. Mm -hmm. Brandon, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so um, a number of people have uh, looked at the... Uh, genetic makeup of ameloblastomas, and a lot of them are found to have MAF kinase pathway aberrations. Uh, one of the more common ones is a BRAF V600E mutation, um, and that's something that we see in a number of different tumors, um, and the reason why that is kind of important, you know, it's not just some thing that Nerdy. you have to memorize <laughs> for like a class or for boards or whatever. Um, the reason why it's important is because there are a number of targeted therapies uh, for BRAF V600E mutations. Mm -hmm. So there are like new solutions coming up to actually treat dimoblastoma at some level with this kind of right. agents. And so, you know, I think we're going to talk about, you know, metastasizing myeloblastoma at a later date, but um, one of the first times it was used, or at least when it was reported in literature, is there was one case where a patient had a metastasizing myeloblastoma to the lungs, mm -hmm. and they weren't quite sure what the best way to treat it was, and so they used a BRAF inhibitor and mm -hmm. significantly shrunk the size of the tumor. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. That's cool. It's cool to be a nerd. Just it sure thing. is. It sure <laughs> is. It helps. It helps. <laughs> okay. Let's go to the clinical features of myeloblastoma. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the thing that we all know about is that myeloblastomas are aggressive, um, they cause uh, marked deformity, especially if you don't treat it very quickly. Um, and especially as the tumors get larger, they can start to grow more and more rapidly. Um, 
still, even though it's aggressive, we call it benign because it doesn't uh, usually metastasize. And when it does metastasize, uh, we call it something special. You know, we call it a metastatic glioblastoma. Mm-hmm. Um, these usually happen um, sometime between like the ages of 20 to 50, but they can happen really at any point of time in life. It's pretty rare under the age of 10, but, you know, tumors do what they want. They don't read textbooks. They definitely don't read textbooks. And so, and so they can occur um, whenever. Um, the vast majority are in the mandible, uh, most commonly in the posterior, but they can occur anywhere. And they are usually asymptomatic. You know, even if they're huge, they usually don't cause um, things like paresthesia or anything or like that. Neuropathy. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And on the histopath, mm-hmm. uh, Brandon, you know, every time I look at the histology slides, I just see pink and purple. It's like 50 <laughs> shades right. of pink and purple. Break yep. it down for us. Make us understand. <laughs> so, um, amyloblastoma is one of those tumors that has a ton of different histologic subtypes. But interestingly, it doesn't appear to have a significant prognostic significance, um, depending on which subtype you might have. Um, some of that might be just because it's a little hard to understand because a single tumor can show any number of the different subtypes. Uh, the most common one, again, is the follicular pattern, the one that looks like the dental lamina. Um, one histologic subtype that has been recently described, it's still kind of an emerging entity, perhaps a little controversial, um, is the adenoid amyloblastoma with dentinoid. So studies that have looked at this have found that a number of previously diagnosed AOTs, uh, adenomatoid adenogenic tumors, which look histologically very similar to the adenoid amyloblastoma with dentinoid. Um, they were misdiagnosed as AOTs. They were treated as AOTs, mm-hmm. which, of course, you know, you just scoop it out and it's cool, mm-hmm. like it's done. Um, cool and, as you, as, and as you might imagine, you know, if you treat an amyloblastoma by, you know, simple um, curatage, like it's, it's going to come back. Okay. And so yeah. some studies are suggesting, you know, like this could be a subtype that has a higher propensity for recurrence. Um, I think we still need to look at it a little more, but it could just be that they weren't treated properly. They weren't mm-hmm. treated like an amyloblastoma, and that's why they tend to recur a lot more. So if you happen to see that, um, you know, on a, on a histology report that you get back an adenoid amyloblastoma with adenoid, um, just know that, you know, it was diagnosed as amyloblastoma. You can treat it just like any other type of amyloblastoma. Interesting. And is this something that more oral pathologists are more equipped to pick up the difference, or is that uh, the, the reason for the mis, um, mislabeling is something else? Yeah, so it's only been described, I think, in the last 10 years or so, mm-hmm. and so a lot of, or- and it's not common at all, and so I think a lot of oral pathologists still um, don't know about it yet, or don't think that it's actually a, its own disease entity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but if you, if you get a report back um, for an adenomatoid adenogenic tumor, and it's in like a 70-year-old patient with a massive lesion, like it's probably not an AOT, and you can uh, feel free to call back your oral pathologist. Um, I really enjoy it when people call me, actually. It's, it's absolutely no trouble at all when people <laughs> call nice. me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got your cell phone. So. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely call you. So let's talk about... Um, and then the, the only other thing that I would say about amyloblastoma, other than the fact that it has a ton of different histologic growth patterns, um, is that they often have cystic changes, which you might see grossly. Um, you know, there are some variants of amyloblastoma that are like, you know, unicystic amyloblastoma, where it's like all cyst, 
Uh, a lot of them will just have these smaller cysts here and there. Um, as long as you don't get that confused with, you know, some sort of cystic entity of the oral cavity, you know, it can still be an amelblastoma, even if you see those little cysts. I'm a gross. Uh, okay, cool. So let's talk about the radiographic presentation. Mm -hmm. uh, so it has been given some fun names, such as honeycomb, uh, such as honeycomb or soap bubble right. appearance on a panoramic X-ray. But most simply put, 50% of amyloblastomas appear as multilocular radiolucent lesions with sharp delineation. The only exception would be dysmoplastic subtype, which may appear as radio-opaque due to collagenized stroma. Don't be fooled if it does appear as a unilocular lesion that's associated more commonly with a solid amyloblastoma. That's right. Yeah, and, and again, you know, these, these amyloblastomas, they can have multiple different histologic subtypes. So you may have areas that have some sort of like radiographic heterogeneity, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. If you have like only partially desmoplastic, even though often that is a significant part of the tumor if it is present. Um, even if you have that, you know, you may have like a mixed radiolucent, radiopaque sort of appearance. Lesions. Okay. Also see in the radiograph that there are some root resorption associated with the lesion and they could be associated with the impacted third molars. So moving on into the treatment, there are two treatment modalities that we have talked about when it comes to amyloblastoma, conservative and radical. What does this mean? When it comes to conservative treatment, we typically mean inoculation, cortage, or surgical excision with peripheral osteotomy and using other adjuvant therapies such as, such as cryotherapy or carnoid solution. So the radical treatment consists of bone resection. In the mandible, the resection can be completed through segmental osteotomy, marginal mandibulectomy. In the maxilla, radical treatment means maxillectomy, and that could be partial or total based on the extent of the resection in the tumor. So why do we have so many different treatment modalities for one disease entity? And for that, we have to kind of look back into the literature and see the recurrence rate associated with, with each of these treatment modality. Recurrence rate in general is noted to be at 20%. But I like to think of recurrence in relation to the treatment and in relation to the histological variant, because those things do matter. According to a large meta-analysis conducted in Brazil, the so-called conservative treatment had a three-fold greater chance of recurrence when compared to a radical surgery. But that's only for a multi-cystic amyloblastoma. Looking at another study, some of our European colleagues did a large meta-analysis looking at all different variables of amyloblastoma, and here is what they found. The recurrence rate for peripheral amyloblastomas was 9% compared to the central amyloblastomas, which was 25%, almost more than double. The recurrence rate for unicystic amyloblastomas was found to be 13% compared to a non-unicystic amyloblastoma with a recurrence rate of 22%. Looking closer to the histological variant for solid multicystic amyloblastoma, they found that the follicular amyloblastoma recurred two times more than 
plexiform amyloblastoma. Brandon, mm. what do you think about this? Okay, so I, I think I know the um, the article that you're talking about. Um, when I read through it, I, I saw that they had mentioned, you know, the different histologic types of amyloblastoma that did recur, but they didn't have a distribution for the non-recurring amyloblastomas. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, the follicular pattern we do know is the most common pattern. Mm-hmm. And so it could merely just be that because the follicular pattern is more common, it has a higher representation in recurrences as well as non-recurrences. So without reporting that, I, I think it's hard to know definitively whether or not the histologic subtype um, is driving the recurrence. Um, the conventional wisdom is that the histologic subtype um, does not play that much of a role mm-hmm, in recurrence. Mm-hmm. Um, but since we know the follicular variant is more common, that's probably why they um, saw more it's more common in recurrence. <laughs> We will keep looking for the truth. Absolutely. In the study, they had some more surprising finding. Like for conservative surgery, the recurrence rate was found to be 35%, and for radical surgery, recurrence was noted at 17%. Half of what was found to be in the conservative therapy, but why? Why should there be any recurrence, if you think about it, if you're doing a radical surgery such as mandibulectomy or maxillectomy? The reason for that could be our definition for the surgical margin and clinical margins required in the radical surgery treatment. This goes back to 1900s. Most radical surgeries were done with preservation of inferior border where disease could possibly have already infiltrated. As Dr. Marks proposed, we have to know what we are dealing with first. Is the lesion unicystic? or mm-hmm. peripheral, or is it solid, mm-hmm. multi-cystic? This distinction is important because that's how we know, because we know that unicystic and peripheral have much lower chance of recurrence than multi-cystic. Mm-hmm. And some authors have pointed to a similar biological behavior between the solid or multi-cystic amyloblastoma and the moral subtype of the unicystic amyloblastoma. That's right. And... You know, one thing that a lot of oral pathologists are keen to point out is that uh, unicystic amyloblastomas are just about impossible to make a diagnosis of on incisional biopsy. Because you might get, you know, this one little area of the cyst, we can look at it, we can tell it's a, you know, at least in that spot, a unicystic amyloblastoma, but we can't definitively rule out Mm -hmm. the presence of mural or, you know, connective soft tissue wall involvement that has a more conventional amyloblastoma within it. Because those cases do tend to behave much more like a you know, conventional solid or multi-cystic amyloblastoma. So what you're saying is that ultimately we need to remove the entire cyst in order for to have like a complete conversation with the oral pathologist mm-hmm. about That's what right. is it that we're dealing yeah. with. Okay, cool. So after we remove the full cyst and have a conversation with our oral pathologist regarding the identity of the tumor, we have to use imaging study to assess the violation of anatomic barriers surrounding the tumor. What is anatomical barrier? Anatomic barriers are soft and hard tissues that function to contain a neoplasm. These include the cortical bone, periosteum, muscle, soft mucosa, mucosa, dermis, and the skin. So for example, if an amyloblastoma originates Within the medullary component of the mandible, it will first in, uh, it will first encounter the anatomic barrier of cortical bone. Once this robust anatomic barrier is 
dilated, the periosteum will soon also be invaded by the tumor, then followed by submucosa, mm -hmm. mucosa, and sub subsequently dermis. And anatomic barrier of skin has not been shown to be invaded by the tumor, no matter how large it gets. Yeah. Is there, is there a reason for that? I'm not sure there is one. Um, there aren't too many tumors that directly infiltrate into the skin. Mm -hmm. um, tumors that have like an infiltrative capacity in the epithelium, so like lymphomas, um, are ones that could possibly do that. Um, there are some epithelial tumors that do that, like um, invasive ductal carcinoma of the breast mm -hmm. can do that. Um, I don't think that a male blastoma has enough of an invasive capacity to get actually into the epidermis of the skin. Skin is really tough. Skin's tough. The skin is the is the hardest anatomical barrier. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> it goes through the bone. It doesn't go through the skin. Okay, so continuing, once the anatomical barrier is identified, a general principle is to involve at least one uninvolved anatomic barrier in your tumor. Uh, in your tumor specimen for adequate removal of tumor. So for example, an ambuloblastoma that's clinically and radiographically determined to have perforated through the buccal cortex should at least be resected with the periosteum. So the ne next question is the, the bone margin, like the resection with one to one centimeter of bone margin is recommended. Why is this? Because the current studies, a review of 82 amyloblastoma resection, showed that this tumor extends with a range of 2 to 8 millimeter and a mean of 4.5 millimeter histologically beyond its radiographic demarcation on a specimen radiographs. According to Dr. Carlson and Marx, if we remove the tumors with those margin of 1 to 1.5 centimeter, we could say that patient is disease-free or curative as long as soft tissue margins are negative. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this could be further confirmed. So how can we be further how can we make sure that we have removed enough tissue? We could use intra-op CT or X-rays or frozen sections as an additional safety guard for adequate resection. Right. Having said all this stuff, ultimately the decision about the treatment is something that is between the patient and us, and we need to see what they're willing to do. And sometimes some of the patients I have seen prefer to do less now, and you know they know that they might have to have a bigger procedure later. They may want to go the conservative treatment and then hope that that will shrink the tumor, and then they will do the resection with the smaller uh, with the smaller margins at that point. You know, this is all stuff that we might have to rethink if BRAF treatment becomes uh, a mainstay of the treatment of male blastomas. Yeah, well, they already have some stuff for OKC that yeah. they're, they're using it, and we'll talk more about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's constantly evolving field. It's very exciting. It is. It's an exciting time to be a nerd. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> Just kind of keep drilling that point in. <laughs> so let's talk about recurrence. The average time of, like, you know, how long should you follow up with your patients and, like, how should you know when to expect, like, when should you expect the recurrence? The average time for recurrence is noted to be five to seven years. Another interesting thing with the recurrence rate is that average time for recurrence after radical surgery could be 11 years. 
and uh, versus conservative therapy could be as early as five years. So it's very, very important to keep following up with patients and have them come back in order to make sure that we're not missing anything. So, uh, Brandon, do you have anything to say about the recurrence of these tumors? Um, nothing more that you haven't already said. Oh, I think we covered it all. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's uh, summarize today's talk with a couple of key factors. So the, um, you know, overall, like, you know, there's a couple of different ways. I guess I probably should have said this earlier. But, <laughs> but there's a couple of different ways to break down the histologic subtype of male blastoma, mm -hmm. right? One is the histologic pattern, and one is the overall histologic architecture, mm -hmm. right? So you can break it down into, like, follicular, plexiform, granular cell, and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. And that's, like, the pattern. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like, you know, essentially what's going on in the actual epithelial nests of the cells. Mm -hmm. But you can also talk about whether or not it's um, like unicystic or solid um, based on the overall architectural pattern, whether or not it is just a large cyst with some epithelial changes that look like a male blastoma in the cyst lining, mm -hmm. or whether or not it's an actual like, you know, mass of invading tumor cells. Okay, okay. That's important to know the language of how we talk about amyloblastoma. Yeah. So th th those are like the two kind of ways that we sort of think about them. I think we talked about them in interchangeably kind of in this lecture, yeah. right? from unicystic to yeah. molecular amyloblastoma. Yeah. Let's run some of the key points. The unicystic mm -hmm. amyloblastoma of luminal and intraluminal subtypes and peripheral amyloblastoma can be treated conservatively. That's right. Right. Turn this and the unicystic amyloblastoma with merle subtype and solid multicystic amyloblastoma should be treated with resection involving one uninvolved anatomic barrier and a linear bone margins of 1 to 1 1.5 centimeter. Right. Okay. So that's about uh, all we're going to cover for today so regarding right. to amyloblastoma. Brandon, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Happy it's, to be here. Yeah, we'll look forward to more episodes with you. Sure.